Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais with another episode of The Yacking Show. This is the show that brings you business ideas and tips that you can take action on to improve your business. We do that by bringing you expert, interesting guests. Today's no exception. But first, let's introduce co-host Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Peter. Thank you so much. And thank you all so very much for tuning in to our show. We so appreciate you. And as Peter mentioned, we do have another special guest with us today. We have the great privilege of welcoming Craig Andrews to the show. Hello, Craig. How are you? Very well, Kathleen and Peter. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, fantastic. Good. Craig is the founder of the marketing agency Allies for Me with the number four, Allies for Me. This is a company that uses a proven method of finding strangers and converting them into high paying customers. So, Craig, on your website, let's just jump in. You mention an eight stage customer value journey, which is a framework that leads someone from first contact to post purchase. What exactly is involved in this eight-stage process? Yeah, so and, and let me describe it. I'll describe it in five large categories that the different stages fall under. But if you think about courtship, um, the stages of courtship, you have to start with an introduction. If there's no introduction, there's no courtship. Mm-hmm. Uh, then after you have that introduction, then you have conversation. And if the conversation goes well, then you have coffee. You know, you don't jump and get married. Okay, a few people do. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and some of those work and God bless mm-hmm. them. Uh, but by and large, you don't jump from hello, how do you do to let's get married? You go have coffee. And if coffee goes well, then you move to something a little more intimate. You, you know, you go out for dinner. And then if that goes well, then you have um, commitment. And, you know, if we were to throw something on afterwards, after commitment, uh, there's something that we like to throw in uh, that we call a delight stage that uh, that deals with buyer's remorse. Uh, so it's kind of that level. It, you know, it really does mimic the um, stages of courtship. And one area where we focus a lot is on um, on what's the kind of the equivalent of the coffee date. You know, so if you think about coffee. Mm-hmm. You go out on coffee with somebody because you hope it leads to something big and better. Right. But you don't know this person. There's risks. There's unknowns. So what happens? You you, know, you drive to the coffee shop separately. You know, you're taking out the commitment risk. You're taking out all sorts of risk. You, you meet there separately. Mm-hmm. Chances are you don't even know each other's address, you know, unless you grew up in a small town like where I grew up and everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. But the... Um, you, um, and if, if the coffee doesn't, if the date doesn't go well, well, it just kind of ends there. Mm-hmm. And, and so we believe that one of the things that's broken in, in high ticket sales, as a matter of fact, I, you know, I told you I was scrambling to get off one call to get here. It's, there's somebody who's just, they're absolutely struggling. Their, their sales are tanking and they try to go from hi, How do you do? to will you sign this $1.2 million contract? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and they're struggling and they're, and their business is in a, in a kind of a tough spot. You know, and guess what? Especially in this economy, mm-hmm. a lot of people are being cautious. They, mm-hmm. they're not interested in that immediate jump from, 
hello, how do you do to, hey, let's let's get into this deep. Right. Absolutely. Wow. Interesting. So I've spent a bit of time on your website over the last couple of days. You've got some really good information on there, and I'd encourage anyone to go and have a look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of things I, I'd like to ask you, but time limited. One that really struck me was your comments on opinion surveys and focus groups that they're actually hurting many businesses. And you use an example, I think, of a business was about to um, destroy many million dollars worth of merchandise because a focus group told them they it wasn't going to sell. So tell our audience a little bit more about your thoughts on all that. Yeah, so that, that company we're referring to is a little-known company known as Coca-Cola, who back in the 1980s mm-hmm. rolled out something called New Coke. And mm. their focus group was 200,000 people. Wow. And yeah, a massive, massive focus group. 200,000 people led Coca-Cola to make a devastating decision. And it's really interesting. What happened as soon as Coke got rid of the, what is now known as classic Coke, and they rolled out the new Coke, people started sending letters to Coca-Cola headquarters. Well, this was before the internet. You know, you mm-hmm. couldn't just go on and go to Google, say what's uh, Coca-Cola's headquarters. You had to go look it up. Then you had to write a physical letter. And then you had to put a stamp on it and walk it down to the post and mail it. And so this was some serious, seriously upset customers. And their focus group didn't lie to them. There's some problems in the way that they structured it, and it's not uncommon. You know, so the article you're referencing also includes an actual video from the focus group that reviewed Apple's iconic 1984 Super Bowl ad. Mm -hmm. And the focus group failed it. And the Apple board of directors pulled the funding from that, told Steve Jobs that they weren't going to run the ad. And Steve Jobs, of course, being Steve Jobs, uh, he'd stand there in front of the board with Wozniak and he'd say, hey, Woz, I'll pay for half if you'll pay for half. And Woz said, sure. And so they bullied their board. They said, looked at the board and said, this ad's running. The only question you have to answer is, do you want to be a part of the success that's going to come out of this? Or do you want to be known as the person who never who refused to pay for the ad? And yeah, not everybody, Steve Jobs, not everybody can get away with that. Sure. But what happens? Um, and th- there's a deep rabbit hole, but I'll, I'll try to keep this very high level. The, the the brain's fascinating. And you know, you've heard the term left brain, right brain. Yeah. If we change it and we think more about system one and system two. System Mm -hmm. one is your fast brain. It's in the back part of your brain. It makes 95% of your decisions. And it does it very, very rapidly. It does it off of a lot of pattern recognition. Uh, Your frontal cortex makes about 5% of your decisions. But when you ask somebody why they made the choice they made, it has to explain 100% of the decisions. And the problem is it wasn't always involved in the decision And there's been some experiments that show what happens is our brains fill in the gaps, makes up nonsense reasons for why we made the choices. And so when you're doing these opinion surveys or focus groups, that's where you end up in the situation like Coca-Cola. They ended up having to scrap $30 million worth of inventory. This was 1984. So that's like $100 million. This is the type of thing that will get you fired if you... Or put your company out of business. Out of business, but, yeah, sure. What I don't understand, though, 
200,000 people were involved in this focus group, you said. Right. How can 200,000 people get it wrong? Like I, like that, I find that that's astonishing to me. Yeah. So the question they asked was, which tastes better? The question they asked, should have asked uh, was, which one would you buy? Yeah. If we gave you a dollar, which one would you buy? And the the thing that people, this is where the brain lies to us, uh, you know, our frontal cortex in explaining the decision. Uh, when they rolled out Coke, there were millions, at least you know, m- millions of people who all of a sudden lost the memory of them sitting on the pier with their granddad learning how to fish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so the taste of that classic Coke, which is kind of the essence of branding anyway, is branding creates an emotional response in someone. And, and so they took away that emotional response that when you drank a Coke, it reminded you of a special event in your life. Wow. And, 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 and the test subjects, they weren't, you know, they weren't trying to be deceitful, weren't trying to mislead them. They just doing these tests is hard. And so here's something else. Here's another example. Uh, there was some retail store that ran a special one weekend and they put somebody at the door of the store to ask people as they walked in, how did you hear about our special? 30% of the people that walked through the door said they heard about the special through the TV ad. The problem is they never ran a TV. They never ran it. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and these people weren't lying. They weren't being lazy. They just, they asked the frontal cortex, why did you come here? Mm -hmm. It was a decision that was made in a different part of the brain. Frontal cortex was missing some information. It filled in the gaps, told the person, here's the reason that you answer with. And it was just utter nonsense. And, And you can see if, if, yeah, thankfully they hadn't run TV ads because otherwise their next special, they may have doubled down on TV ads. Mm-hmm. Mm, right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Eh? So uh, all businesses really have to pay attention to metrics, you know, whether it's your coming in traffic, going to your website or whatever, that those are important metrics, but are, do you, are there metrics that you prefer to use and why? Yeah. So another really big question. Um, the it's probably easier for me to answer the uh, question on the metrics that I try to avoid. And again, I had a uh, had a workshop with a client this morning, and they were saying, "Hey, we want to measure this, and we we actually have a process we take them through, and we say, okay, once you have the answer to that, what's the action you're going to take afterwards?" Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, blah, 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 blah. Um, well, I'm going to look at it. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Well, that metric is just creating noise on your dashboard. It's creating visual noise. It's creating noise that's keeping you from finding the essential truths that you're looking for. And so the metrics that I like are most tied to outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so now we have one, uh, we have one report that we love. We, um, it's a very high level report. We call it the pipeline report and it starts from first touch on the website you know, or contact wherever the first touch is all the way through to them being a customer. And it's real simple. And you, you, we, we do a, because of the sales cycle of our business, we do a, 
a rolling 90-day uh, mm -hmm. report. And so I can go in there anytime and see, uh, look at how things are going. And the simple answer is manage the red, celebrate the green. You know, so if you see that you're up in areas, okay, don't put your focus there. Then start focusing on what's red and why is it red? And, you know, and that just, um, so in terms of the metrics, I mean, every business has custom metrics, has custom mm -hmm. needs that are unique to them. The, so it'd be hard. It, I feel like it'd be irresponsible for me to throw out one metric. That's my favorite metric that may work mm -hmm. for my business. It may not work for another business, oh, but okay. what I would say, Is, but what I would say on, oh, please go ahead. Uh, so, so sorry, Craig, didn't, didn't mean to interrupt you, but uh, given that it would, is there any metrics that companies have a tendency to overlook? You know, I'm surprised by the number of companies that overlook, um, that fail to tie actions to revenue mm -hmm. or measurements to revenue. So people get excited about what their web traffic is. Oh, our web traffic's up, you know, 10% this month. Okay, good. Well, what's that mean to revenue? Well, I don't know. Our web traffic's up 10%. I'm like, who cares if your web traffic's up 10%? So the thing that I see them overlooking mm -hmm. predominantly is how it ties to, uh, to, uh, to revenue. And so if we start on the other side of the equation and say, well, how much revenue do you, uh, do you want? And we're like, well, I'd like to do 50 million this quarter or whatever the number is. Um, Okay, and if you're getting that, you know, if you're getting 30% or 50% of that from your web traffic, what does your web traffic need to be to drive that? You know, and so all of a sudden, that's where web traffic has meaning mm -hmm. is more tied back to if I have this much web traffic, it means this much in revenue, but it's not always uh, correlated. I mean, we made some changes in our business where our web traffic went up uh, double digits, but our sales conversations and our sales went up triple digits. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so that is uh, <laughs> linking the action to the outcome, right? Mm -hmm. Indeed. Indeed, Indeed it yeah, is. Yeah. So it, it seems to me with my age, I was in the corporate world in marketing before the before the internet and before uh, computers smaller than the size of, of half of upper floor of the office building. Um, so we didn't have the luxury of all these sort of metrics we're talking about now. We work things out with paper and programmable calculators. So, but it, 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 it did mean that because it was such an effort to track metrics, people tended to track the ones that were important and not the ones that were nice to know, right? So yeah. perhaps, uh, and we sort of track things like ad expenditure to sales, direct correlation, uh, and all that sort of thing. Anyway, we don't want to go back into the past to the pre-internet days, but I, I just find it interesting that it's so easy to get bogged down with statistics that are not actually helping you in this day and age, right? So it wasn't... Wasn't it Mark Twain that said there there are lies, uh, damn lies, and statistics? That's right. It was yeah, yeah. That's attributed to him. You're absolutely right. The one I love, and coming from Texas, cow country and horse country, you'll like this one. That if the computer had been and the internet had been around in the early days of the 19th century, it would have predicted that the rise in population and the amount of commerce in England 
relying on horse-drawn transport would have meant the whole island would have been two feet deep in horse manure by the in a hundred years, right? So I love that yeah. statistic. <laughs> anyway, um, Kathleen, I haven't told you that one before. I do apologize. <laughs> Let's go on to sales conversations, um, Craig. You, you talk, you teach people how to engineer sort of ideal sales conversations, but with businesses having so many differences, can there be an ideal sales conversation? Yeah, it's well. What we call the ideal sales conversation is when somebody comes up to you and says, "and says, Matt, pay you money to solve this problem for me." You know, and and at which point you just say, "Sure." Yeah. Um, and you know, in in some ways, that that's kind of the the conversation I was having again immediately before this. It was it was a call. We actually have a meeting scheduled um, tomorrow with this uh, with this prospect and. Um, and she called me and said, I need to understand more of what you do. We have this big problem. I think maybe you can help us solve more. You know, we have more problems than we've discussed. And I want to see if you can help me solve these. Well, that's kind of what I call the ideal sales conversation. Sure. Uh, and yeah. so the, the big way that we do that is we, um, it's, we really focus on the coffee date. Now for us, our, we do high ticket sales. We help people with high ticket sales. And the, um, and the challenge is people get really, really skittish about making a big commitment. And mm -hmm. so we just eliminated all that. We took the coffee date concept. We, we took out the commitment risk. We took out the uh, financial risk. Uh, we took out all sorts of, of risk. And we do a mini project with somebody that we call the first time offer. And there's certain things really critical in structuring those first time offers, but we, we put those together and the, um, and we were just wrapping that up. This person got a binder, you know, so when we complete a mini project, we send them a physical binder. We're old school that way mm -hmm. that they get a physical binder with the results and they were flipping through the binder and that's when they called. And that's a much different scenario than me having to pin them down. Okay. When are we going to talk next? And then trying to figure out how I'm going to sell them. Um, I, and I do this one because I'm, I'm horrible at sales. I am truly not gifted. I'm absolutely horrible at sales. And every time I tried it, I'd try the different sales scripts, different sales conversations. Uh, they left me feeling yucky and they didn't work. And, you know, purely as a matter of survival, the need to put food on the table, I was like, something has to change. And so what we like to say is instead of selling, we just create an environment where people want to buy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so Craig, there's something on your website that grabbed my attention. You mentioned that, and I'm quoting here, pricing strategies are the battleground where good marketing dies. Can you explain that? Yeah. So that was, that was from a presentation I was given a while. I gave a number of years ago. Um, the, you know, what I saw, um, so when I was in corporate America, especially, uh, and I still see it today, you know, when sales go down. So what's happening? You know, the, you know, the, the world economy is not doing great, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the high ticket space. Prices are dropping and or, or sales are slowing. And so what do people do? They, they say, okay, we know how to fix this problem. We're going to fix it by reducing the price. And it's funny, I've had people who have actually responded to 
uh, LinkedIn posts that have that make that point who then call me and say, hey, we now have our service at a lower price. I've been offered a opportunity to give you a discount. And and it's funny. It's like, oh, my goodness. I'm like completely transparent about this. And I told them what the what the barriers were. And instead of addressing the instead of addressing the um, the problem from from a marketing uh, perspective, they just try to fight it with price. And the particular mm-hmm. challenge is we, you know, inflation has just gotten really unwieldy lately. Mm-hmm. And if you're dropping prices while inflation is particularly high, all you're doing is accelerating the rate in which you're imperiling your business. Yes. Yeah. 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 And and it's a terrible slope to get on because it's so difficult to get off it once you started on that slide, right? Right. Well, because the revenue feels good. You know, you you, you made mm-hmm. a sale, it feels good, it gets you some endorphins. Uh then you you know, you wake up later with a hangover realizing, oh, we're not making money on that business. And um but so we need to go do more of that. And it's I mean, it's crazy. I mean, I just see it happening all the time. And um, and so what I would say is what you have there is a, a marketing problem. Uh, so funny, again, I'm drawing from conversations I had earlier today. There's a, a guy named John Spolstra who is a sports marketer. He was the president of the uh, Portland Trailblazers for most of the 80s mm-hmm. until Paul Allen took over. And then he ended up uh, uh, doing the marketing for the New Jersey Nets, which was the worst team in the league. They were dead last in the league and he worked with them for four years and he got them to the point where they were number one in ticket sales. He took the worst team in the league and beat every other team. In he ticket got number sales. One. Wow. 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 <laughs> and so, you know, what, what John said that, that really stuck with me is quit blaming your product for why your sales, why you're not getting sales, figure it out, yeah. sell the product you have. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so that's where, so Kathleen, back to your question, I think that's more of a marketing problem. It's less of a of a sales discussion. It's more of a marketing problem. Mm-hmm. What's what's missing? What's fundamentally missing? Because people don't stop spending money during recessions. My goodness, uh, Walt Disney Corporation was founded during the Great Depression. It's mm-hmm. true. Yes, and that was that was just entertainment money. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's so right. people still spend. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So let's switch gears a bit, <clears throat> Craig. Tell tell our audience a little bit about yourself because you've got a very interesting background. You you call yourself a speaker. You are a speaker and a marketer and a writer, but you say you're always a marine. So how did you go from serving as a marine to to doing what you're doing now? And there's a, a, a subsidiary question to that because I found out a little earlier from what we were talking about that you learned an awful lot about marketing from a six week coma. So there's a couple of questions <laughs> in one, but do you do your best with that lot? All right. Yeah. So um, in, in high school, uh, absolutely none of my teachers bragged about me being a model student. I was quite the opposite. <laughs> and um, and so when, when I realized my 2.54 GPA would not get me into any university that anybody had ever heard of, I thought, you know, let me let me try a different route. So I joined the Marine Corps. And if, if you hang out with Marines, you'll know the worst thing you call somebody as an ex-Marine, once a Marine, always a Marine. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's um, it, it just it was a wonderful, wonderful time of life. I worked with wonderful people and still have friends to this day from from my time in the Marine Corps. And um, and um, when I was in for six years and I was actually stationed in Japan or deployed to Japan more accurately um, right before I got out and. I applied to North Carolina State University from a Japanese post office. I filled out my application. This is before the internet. Actually, the internet was around, but just barely known. And right. um, I mean, barely. It was still exclusively in the universities. And so I walked down to the uh, walked down to the post office, applied, came back to the United States, and started university. Um, I thought I wanted to, you know build, be creative and build things. And I thought, well, engineering would be a great place to do that. And unfortunately, I made it all the way through a master's degree of electrical engineering before I figured out that's not the place to be creative. They do not (laughs) like creative people there. No, That's not not how you get rewarded. Uh, I I did well at my work. I just wasn't happy. Uh, And so um, I thought, well, let me try marketing. And so I marketed semiconductors for mobile phones. Um, Uh, Okay. Yeah, for about a decade, I did that. And so I was, you know, I've been the in the world's largest mobile phone makers, at least back then, you know, back when Nokia was still making mobile phones. Mm-hmm. They sort of are now, but, um, you know, certainly not the days where one out of every two phones in the world was a Nokia. Yeah. Um, I've been to Motorola back when they made phones. Uh, Ericsson, I actually worked at Ericsson straight out of university, but uh, marketed Ericsson later. And Samsung, they're the only one, and Apple. So Apple and Samsung were the only two that I'd visited back in those days that are still in the phone business still today. And, um, and I traveled to Asia a lot. And you know, the, the one thing that, you know, to get those phones to you for a price that you'll buy, uh, there's incredible price pressure on the components. And we had, to take, uh, we had to take 50% of our cost out of our product every single year just to be viable. Wow. And, yeah. Yeah. And and I, I knew the days were coming when they would ask me to fly coach to Asia. And I, I decided early on when when that day came, I was like, I, I'm done. And sure enough, uh, that day came. And I was flying to Asia four or five times a year. I was like, I'm not flying to coach to Asia four <laughs> or five times a year, not doing it. And I've been pretty successful. I mean, I drove over half a billion dollars of revenue in that space. I've been pretty successful. I thought, let me bring my genius to the rest of the world. And, and I started doing my own marketing. And it's funny, when I run into my buddies from the semiconductor world, they ask me what I've been doing. And I say, I've spent the last decade learning how little I know about marketing. <laughs> um, but it's been a neat, neat journey. And so, you know, you asked about my coma. Um, that's a story in itself. But um when when I woke up, there was there was a really interesting realization. So kind of the short version is in August of 2021, I went in the hospital with a severe case of COVID. Um, Eleven days later, they shot me full of morphine, uh, which apparently is not good for respiration, uh, yeah. which is not something you'd seem to want to hamper uh, with somebody who has a respiration problem. And so a few hours later, they called my wife and said, hey, we're going to put him on the ventilator. And she said, well, he doesn't want to go on the ventilator. And they laughed and they said, well, if he doesn't, he's going to be dead in 24 hours. 
And she said, well, how many people have you had survived the ventilator? And he said, none have survived. Yeah. You know, so this was the Delta variant of COVID. And the basic rule was if you went on the ventilator with Delta, you died. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm the first one to leave that ICU alive. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Very. And from my understanding, I asked very, very few followed me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so they shot me full of morphine. It was lights out for six weeks. And something really amazing happened during those six weeks. When I woke up six weeks later, my trust in the doctors had plummeted <laughs> while my trust in my wife had gone through the roof. Yeah. And all this was while I was unconscious. And the, uh, and when I woke up, my brain was real scrambled. I believed some things about the world that weren't true. And uh, about a week and a half later, I started realizing, okay, I, I need to get some clarification. So I called my wife over and I said, I'm going to tell you some things. I need you to tell me if these things really happened or not. And the first thing I asked her, I said, have we been to Louisiana? She said, nope, no, we haven't been to Louisiana. She said, why do you ask? And I told her about how I was at a resort in Louisiana convalescing and you know, a bunch of weird things happened there, including getting sprayed in the face with raw cow's milk. And um, which at the time, I believe this is why I was asking her, did these things happen? Yeah. And uh, and I said, well, at one point they wanted me to leave the resort and they started getting really angry when I wouldn't leave. And I kept telling them I can't move. And I said, eventually you came in, you put your hand on my left shoulder. And you said, Craig, this is Karen. I'm your wife. It's going to be OK. And Karen sat back and she looked at me and she said, Craig, I said that to you while you were in your coma. Wow. 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 That's amazing. And, yeah. Well, there's a Maya Angelou quote that says, people will forget what you said. They will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. Made them feel. Right. Yeah. And during those six weeks, while the doctors were speaking death and despair, around me my wife was speaking life hope and encouragement and so when i woke up the doctors would come and they'd say hey we want to do this and in hindsight these these were Im immensely normal and reasonable things for them to do but when the doctors came asking i always said no and so they'd have to go to her and convince her and she'd come to me and she'd say hey the doctors want to do this and i'd ask her i said is it safe she said, oh, yeah. And as soon as she said yes, then they could proceed. And so where I would tie that back to marketing, I would actually tie it back to our first time offer. That's like a coffee date. Mm -hmm. This is an opportunity for you to go in and give somebody a uh, influence how they feel. Mm -hmm. You know, the conversation I just had immediately before this uh, was so personal, so um, revealing that I couldn't possibly share it on this podcast, but this person was sharing some immensely uh, vulnerable things about their business with me. Right. Well, that's because she trusted me. Mm -hmm. That's right. And that's why we like these first time offers is it creates an environment where you can build that kind of trust without making a big commitment. Mm -hmm. After that, the big commitment becomes easy. Right. Wow. 
Yeah, that is very interesting. And thank you for sharing that for us yes, and our audience. Absolutely. Uh, I'm watching the time, Kathleen. Yes, we are actually. Shall I, shall I go? Shall we? Was there anything quick you wanted to ask, Greg? Uh, why don't Why don't we? Why don't you go on to ask your burning question? My and... burning question. So, yeah. and I love being able to ask this of of a marine who's still a marine, having served in the military myself, but not at the marine level. I was just an infantryman in the army for part time in Africa for ten years. So different experience, but. We ask this of all our successful guests, and you're certainly successful in many fields. So, Craig, in your experiences, is there one habit, one mindset, or a characteristic that sets the successful business leaders apart from those that never really make it, that remain average, or or just don't get out of the rut? Is it one thing, or is it more complicated? Uh, well, there's there's one thing, and it, and it may be complicated. Uh, I would say the thing that sets people apart is the ability to look at a situation, see it differently than everybody else, mm -hmm. and to be able to see the opportunities. You know, when when COVID first hit and the lockdowns first hit, and um, you know, I saw businesses just you know shuddering. It broke my heart yep. uh, so much. So I, you know, I offered a service. I said. Um, if you pay me $25, I'll give you a 30 minute COVID cons consultation to figure out how to get your business going again. You know, we always charge something. I mean, mm -hmm. there's some re psychology behind that. Sure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had a fella, had a fella take me up on that. And he said, well, I coach public speakers. Well, there's no public speaking. My business is shot. And we sat down and I, we started mapping out what he had and he, he had a client that was going to give a commencement address at a university at his alma mater. And, and by looking at the problem differently, I said, you know, Jim, your, your client, nobody cares about the commencement address. You know, that, it's just somebody has to talk until they get to leave. I said, COVID's just flipped that for you. You have all these students who have, have their degrees and they're about to graduate and they have student debt and they're looking for jobs, but they can't go out and interview for jobs. Your client is a successful business owner who knows what he's looking for in employees mm -hmm. and applicants. I said, he's more valuable not only to the students, but he's also more valuable to the university than he was before COVID. Absolutely. I said, you need to go ahead with this commencement address, just move it online and have the focus of it be how to find a job in COVID. Right. Right. Well, yeah, there you go. Yeah, very good. Very good answer. Thank you. So, Craig, that. a final question for you. How do people contact you? Yeah, so our website is alliesforme.com. That's the number four. And um, and we actually have a gift for your audience. So we talked a little bit about first-time <laughs> offers. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, we... Um, uh, when I first set out to do those, uh, my first one failed. Uh, my second one failed. My third one failed a little bit less. Uh, it took me like 18 months to get this figured out, well, to start getting it figured out. And then we've been refining it over the last five years. Well, we've made a guide to help you avoid some of the mistakes that we've made. And so that's one thing we're offering. We also have a self-paced course where you get 23 days access to the course. Uh, the reason we're limiting it to 23 days is uh, like you, I've signed up for free courses that I've never logged in to use. We want to see this change your life. 
So you get 23 days access and we actually see it in the analytics. So the way you access that is just go to alliesforme.com slash yakking, all one okay. word, all lowercase, and you'll get that. Wonderful. Very good. Thanks for that, Craig. We will yes. put that in. And for our audio listeners, you can get all those details in the description on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Thank you, Craig. Thank, thank you. you. It's been delight. Yes, it was a privilege again. And thank you also very much for tuning in. If anyone is interested in being a guest on our show, please visit us at theyackingshow.com. All you need to do is click on the contacts tab where you will find a short application form and we'd love to hear from you. And if there's any topics that are of interest to you, please let us know. We have access to wonderful experts on this show. Um, until next time, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye bye. 